that through Christ alone, by faith alone, we have access to the riches of eternal glory. We thank you, Lord, that though we were wretched with nothing to offer, no merit in and of ourselves, that we condemned in our sin deserved hell, Christ, by a sheer act of mercy for the glory of God the Father and according to the work of the Holy Spirit, took on flesh and died in our place and secured for us salvation from our sin and ushered us into the promises of eternal glory. We thank you, Father, for these truths. We thank you that you have laid down your plan of salvation in seed form from the beginning and we can appreciate the blossoming fruit and the deep roots, Lord Jesus, that fill our minds and hearts and souls as we see them unfolding through the course of revelation in Scripture. And now as we turn to your holy word, I pray that our strength and our assurance of the gospel, our confidence in the faith would be reinforced by these means. And I pray that you would increase our boldness to proclaim these things and our assurance to stand in a day where our faith is threatened and to realize that Christ, our victor and Lord, who has defeated sin in the grave, is able and will preserve us unto glory eternal. We thank you, Lord, for the amazing grace that we have found in him and for the amazing hope of the covenant of that grace and for the amazing future that we have secured because of all of these things. Now bless the proclamation of your word, we pray, so that you might be glorified and people might be drawn unto the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, we have the great honor and privilege of opening up the scriptures today, and let us do so by turning to Psalm 91. Psalm 91 will be our text today, 16 verses, author unknown, yet I'm sure many of you are familiar with this song. It's one of the more popular, if you will, one of the more well-known, maybe more often committed to memory than quite a few others. The title of this morning's message is Most High Refuge. The title comes from the opening words of our song and also the center, Confession. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, which is a title for the Lord, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This shelter, this shadow, is also referred to as a refuge. We see later in the text, verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. Christ, the Lord, is our Most High refuge. The aim of this morning's message is to identify, to value, and to proclaim the dwelling place of God with man. To identify, to value, and to proclaim the dwelling place of God with man. Would you stand out of reverence for God's Word today as you're able, and listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing? From Psalm 91. Here we have the holy word of God. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Verse 8, 
You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So this morning in our psalm series, we come to a beloved installment in the Psalter. Psalm 91 is a familiar text to many. It's often memorized. And much like Psalm 23 has become sort of iconic of the Psalter itself, a classic example of the Psalms in the minds and the traditions of many. How many have memorized uh, all or a portion of Psalm 91? Several of you. Uh, yesterday at family worship around the di- dining room table, we had uh, Ryder and Jace over to eat, and Jace uh, uh, memorized or he recited the first few verses for us from Psalm 91. And I was, I was impressed. And so this is probably a familiar text for many of you. After all, I'm sure you parents have committed or helped your children commit to memory passages like this. While there are great benefits to familiarity of a text like this, our sentimental connections with certain portions of Scripture can also present challenges. There's a benefit to being really familiar with a text, but there can also be some challenges um, with knowing a passage such as Psalm 23 or Psalm 91 so well. It may serve us well to probe deeper than our immediate attachments to our favorite passages and analyze them from a fresh perspective. We can do this sometimes by considering to give an eye to the greater context, perhaps the theological situation in the Scripture, the historical background of the passage, or uh, 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 considering Psalm 91, for instance, through this filter, may yield a deeper deeper and greater treasure for us still, and that will be the uh, goal of this sermon, to dig a little deeper into Psalm 91, perhaps, to yield the treasure therein contained. The occasion for Psalm 91, that means that the original impetus, inspiration, and events that the author was experiencing that moved him to write, it may well have been corporate and personal perils of war, a, a protracted era of conflict in his civilization, in his nation, namely Israel. The terrors of war can strike deep into the consciousness and paralyze the soul of individuals who are overtaken by them. And if not war were you know, that is our experience right now, we can certainly relate because any number of conflicts uh, threaten us at any given time, given the fallen state of our world. And Psalm 91, therefore, applies to all these situations. Much of its imagery incorporates battle environment or battle condition references. And while there certainly is a personal and individual application and context that we might gather, we might glean from the song, It behooves us to remember its purpose is for corporate worship. This is a song for all God's people to sing in unison, as it were. And so the context 
is primarily in the nation of Israel, the covenant faithful, a song for all of them, not just a song for your personal devotional life or for your individual reassurance, but a song for all the people of God. This would be the driving impetus inspiring these words. Psalm 91 is also, in Psalm 91, there's a pointed messianic element that sometimes is overlooked. This psalm directly is associated with the work and ministry of Christ, particularly, and we'll reference this in due course, Matthew 4, in his temptation. It is also noteworthy to note that Psalm 90, the preceding psalm, and Psalm 91 are pair, are pair in theme. They go well together. Uh, psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. goes on to extol the timelessness uh, of the Lord, His eternal uh, nature. And then it contrasts the eternal, timeless, powerful nature of God with the frailty of man. And the instruction that Moses gives in Psalm 90 is that we would therefore number our days. Consider wisely our state and our priorities in light of the omnipotence, the power of God, His timelessness, and the frailty of man. So Psalm 90 is, turns us to, it emphasizes the Lord is our eternal dwelling place given the frailty of man. Psalm 91 points to the Lord as our dwelling place, given the calamity of our fallen world. So by emphasis, Psalm 90 highlights the frailty within and the fallenness within. Psalm 91 highlights the frailty and the fallenness without. And both Psalms turn our attention the same direction, to assurance, to safety, to refuge, to that uh, feeling of calm and peace that is found in the dwelling place of God with man, His presence alone. He is our most high refuge. He is our dwelling place. He is the place of our ultimate hope, safety, salvation, and protection. So given this introduction, let me give you a heading. Dwelling in the shelter of the Most High provides the following. Dwelling in the shelter of the Most High provides, number one, a covering of protection. Dwelling in the shelter of the Most High provides favor from judgment. Number three, it provides conquering grace. And number four, covenantal benevolence. And we'll expand. Dwelling in the shelter of the Most High provides a covering of protection. Verses 1 through 5 highlight this primary theme, the protective covering of the shelter of the Most High. Again, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. With your mental highlighter, uh, note each reference in these first five verses to a protective covering, a covering of protection that the author multiplies images and metaphors to demonstrate. He who dwells in the shelter, that would be the first one, of the Most High will abide in the shadow of of the Almighty. Shelter, shadow. I will say of the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Do you notice a couple more there? Refuge, fortress. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. And then verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. 
So as we see these metaphors lining up to illustrate the superior protection, the reassuring safety of the dwelling that is provided by the Most High, by Yahweh Himself, by the Lord, notice these pictures. Shelter, shadow, refuge, fortress, pinions, wings, shield, and buckler. I'm sure most of these are familiar to us, but who can tell me, tell me what opinion is? Any of you kids know what opinion is? Ah, uh, yes, Jace. Feathers, very good. Pinion can refer to feathers and wings. And a lot of times we see parallels in the Psalms, do we not? So we see wings and pinions as they're translated here. Two references in this picture, in this metaphor, to wings outstretched that cover over the protected ones underneath. Another word that we don't use every day, buckler. Who can give me a definition for buckler? Anybody know what that is? Yes, mom. Very good, a small shield. A buckler is a shield that can be used at arm's length, and it is an indispensable implement in war. It prevents you from so many weapons that might otherwise take you out, guarding the heart against you know, sword blows and arrows and so forth. So here we have this multiplication of metaphors, all these illustrations to give to us this picture of the dwelling, of dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, what it provides. It provides a covering of protection. I believe one of the, reason, the reasons that the altar multiplies all these images is to convey to us that the Lord is a greater shelter than a mere castle would be. The Lord is a greater shelter than the presence of a successful general and serving in his shadow or in an administration that is particularly successful in keeping the neighbors at bay or the shelter of your parents' children who provide for you a reassuring presence as you encounter an unknown, uh, unknown factors and forces in a dangerous world. Furthermore, the Lord is a greater refuge than the home that we live in, no matter if the walls are poured concrete and 10 feet thick. If we have a shield of lead around us, it doesn't matter how strong it is. The Lord is a stronger shelter still. Not only do the wings of the birds of nature protect her young and illustrate to us that protective care, not only does the Lord meet this standard of protection for His own, for His children, for His offspring, as it were, but He is more still. He is a shield. He is a buckler in war. In other words, all of these aspects in our experience, that we associate with provision, protection, with care, with comfort, with reassurance, with safety, with peace of mind, the Lord is greater than the sum of them all. The Lord is greater than any one of them. Let me introduce a question by way of application. Where do you find refuge? I think of the things that make you anxious and stressful. Anxiety and stress is a preoccupation in the consciousness of the opulent West. No matter how much access we have by way of resources, technology, and by way of wealth to secure for ourselves peace of mind, nevertheless, we are plagued in our society with anxiety and stress. Where do we turn for refuge? Where do we find shelter, shadow, refuge, fortress, the wings, the pinions, the shield, and the buckler for our great concerns? Do we find them ultimately and only in the Lord, or do we search for refuge, for strength, for shelter in other things? The question is irrelevant to us today. The author of Psalm 91 would turn us to the Lord, 
and would remind us that finding shelter, refuge, reassurance, safety, peace of mind in things other than the Lord, above Him, anything that's beside Him that we trust in for hope, assuaging our anxiety and our stress is in fact an idol. There is nothing that compares to the protection of the Lord. All these things are cheap substitutes. They will ultimately fail. Um, A strong wall cannot keep out the pestilence. You must must still breathe air. An airborne pathogen will drift over the walls of a tall castle and knock out the entire inhabitants of a walled city by plague. Do you see? The strong walls of a city impregnable by the enemy forces can be easily breached by an airborne virus. Thus, our world is continually fraught with danger as a result of our fallen condition. So the only ultimate covering and protection is found in the dwelling place of the Most High. Now, I want to expand on another picture in our text as well. Notice verse 4, He will cover you with His pinions, under His wings you will find refuge. You may remember Matthew 23, 37 through 38, Jesus is lamenting that Jerusalem, worthy of destruction, will soon be uh, fall prey to enemies without. And he says in this lament prior to declaring this judgment that I uh, see fulfilled in AD 70, he says, how long I have longed or how I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. That is, Christ invokes this picture of protective wings and his desire to compassionately huddle those whom he loves close to him. However, he knows that God's purposes in this instance will bring judgment on the people. So Christ himself in his ministry will sometimes invoke this imagery of wings or pinions to cover his beloved. But there is another picture that is invoked here as well. This might be our most, what I've just stated might be our most common association. We think of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings on a rainy day, and they find comfort and solace next to her beating heart in the storm. A mothering hen gathers and protects her chicks in this way. And our context here certainly contains this idea, but I think it contains more. Let me ask you this question. Where on earth, at the time of the writing of Psalm 91, the time of the authorship, was most emblematic of these assurances? Was there a place on earth at this time that symbolized, that, was, that represented the pinions and the wings of the Lord as a refuge and safe covering? Uh, did I hear an answer? The Holy of Holies. That is correct. Psalm 61, turn there briefly with me if you would. Um, some months ago, we covered a similar imagery, similar imagery from Psalm 61, as I recall. Psalm 61, verse 4, the author, David, he cries out, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Here the sheltering wings of the Lord are associated with His tent. Why? Because this is the dwelling place of God with man, pictured in what? The Holy of Holies or the tabernacle at this time. Within the tabernacle, you had the place that represented the dwelling of God with man in the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies was that furniture that included the Ark of the Covenant. And what do we see on top of the Ark of the Covenant but wings? The cherubim facing one another, as it were, stretching out their wings. Uh, Children, what was underneath the wings of the cherubim? That's correct. It was the mercy seat. This mercy seat underneath the wings represented, as it were, the safest place on earth. 
The mercy seat was the place of God's reconciliation with man. It was also the place where the blood of atonement was shed. And here you had refuge and safety from every one of man's enemies in a post-fall world. Not only refuge from the enemies without foreign nations that would like to take over your, your land, but also refuge from the enemy within, the sin that condemned you to hell. Because the atoning blood of Christ ultimately that the blood of the atonement spoke of symbolically then is the place, is the provision for ultimate dwelling of God with man, ultimate shelter the Most High provides. And so underneath the wings of the cherubim, as it were, we find the mercy seat, and in that location is represented, is most quintessentially symbolized the safest place on earth, if you will. This is the place of which Psalm 91, may I submit, and Psalm 61 also uh, proclaim. He will cover you with His pinions. Under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Not only His faithfulness to protect your physical body from getting sick or your physical body from being destroyed by your enemy's sword, but your spiritual man from being condemned to hell. Only the mercy seat holds out hope, as it were, and this mercy seat ultimately fulfilled in the blood of Christ for the ultimate place of covering, protection, and shelter for mankind. Shelter from what, you might ask? If the dwelling place of the Most High provides a covering of protection, what are our enemies? There are a couple of parallel references to our enemies in these first five verses. Let's consider them in verse 3. For He will deliver you, firstly, from the snare of the fowler. What is a fowler? A little bit of trivia this morning. What is a fowler? Anyone know? Someone who catches birds. There are different ways to catch birds. Is Gideon here this morning? I saw a picture of a successful bird catch this week. Uh, Gideon had a little uh, sparrow or something like that trapped underneath a plastic lid. He waited very carefully, as I understand it, with a string and this device and once that bird had crept under that Tupperware container and was eating the seed or whatever, he deftly pulled the string and he became a fowler in that moment. Gideon trapped the bird and so on our family text thread, there was a glowing face of Gideon with his successful snare that he had rigged up and this little bird under a Tupperware container. So that bird at that moment was at the mercy of Gideon. That bird had to rely on Gideon's mercy and grace to be free if he was to lift the lid and let him go. And this is the idea of the fowler and the snare of the fowler we see in verse 3. In spite of the fact that there are those who plot and scheme and would like to trap us in their devices, we are delivered from this snare of the fowler, from this insidious diabolical plan to trip us up, whether by the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, or his agents, different people who work to uh, ensnare us by different things. It could be temptations of the world to trap us in sin. It could be uh, a threat against our physical body, maybe persecution that comes in a country that's inhospitable to the gospel. These things are the snare of the fowler, but though they represent a formidable adversary, the Lord nevertheless delivers us from them, and in His dwelling we have shelter from the snare of the bird catcher, a second example of adversary, and from the deadly pestilence. What is a pestilence? Pestilence is a disease, like a plague. It's a disease that overtakes a whole area. Think in the book of Exodus. There was deliverance from the pestilence, the boils, the lice, the 
you know, the fleas, the, all of the, the different things that plagued the Egyptians. But there was deliverance found in the land of Goshen, the place, as it were, of God's dwelling with man. Ultimately, the most horrible pestilence of all the plagues of Egypt was when the firstborn were slaughtered on that fateful night when the angel of death took all who weren't what? Covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. This is the picture of deliverance from pestilence, the ultimate pestilence. Judgment via death will come for all whose life is not purified, atoned for by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, ultimately Christ, the lamb of God. But there's deliverance from this deadly pestilence again and at the mercy seat, at the atoning blood provided under the wings and the pinions of God, our shelter, God, our dwelling place. So we have in these two categories, the snare of the fowler, that would be a targeted attack by people who are scheming, forces that would scheme and plan and strategize against us, and from the deadly pestilence, which represents a widespread calamity, like a whole-scale destruction. Hollywood plays on these two themes uh, in their pictures of parallel and blockbuster movies. Apparel, uh, as it's portrayed in popular culture, usually falls in these two categories. Either there's this uh, hyper-competent, efficient you know, enemy and adversary who is cool, calm, collected, and calculating. That's a lot of C's. And they're looking uh, to scheme and to plan, and, then, and it's just a terrifying thought that there's this enemy that is anticipating your very move, and will this next turn in the trail be an ambush? And will they outsmart us? And will our uh, design for escape be sufficient to evade their plotting attempts? And then... There is a wide-scale destruction, everybody running from a nuclear explosion with a wall of debris chasing them, a volcano erupting or a storm or a rising tide, a tidal wave, some great calamity. The promise from Psalm 91 is no matter the type of threat that assails us, whether the snare of the follower or the deadly pestilence, the targeted attack or the widespread calamity, only the dwelling place of God with man, the shelter of the Most High is sufficient to save us from these uh, deadly enemies. So the dwelling place, the shelter of the Most High, provides for us a covering of protection. Secondly, verses 6 through 9, it provides for us favor from judgment. Notice that we see the idea of destruction featured in these verses. Verse 6, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Verse 8, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. Perhaps a great picture in parallel, a cross-reference for this idea of favor from judgment that comes by way of destruction for us is seen in Genesis 6. We've been going through the story of the salvation of Noah and his family in the ark of God's salvation from the waters of destruction that will swallow up the wicked world. And in this picture, as we see the Lord making a place of dwelling, as it were, with Noah. Noah found favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord delivers to him his salvation plan. Noah obediently heeds, listens to, values, and follows the word of God, creating this ark, which will be the instrument of salvation to deliver his family through the waters of judgment. But what falls 
at Noah's side all the while. And the 10,000 at his right hand, is it not the whole-scale destruction of the wicked world? Could Noah say in Psalm 91, 7, a thousand may fall at my side, 10,000 may fall at my hand, but it will not come near me because you have provided for me your means of salvation? Yes. This is true of Noah. This is true of us. If we are in Christ, if He is our ark of salvation, on that final day, the final day of great destruction, the final day of judgment, when the Lord takes His rightful seat on His holy throne and all must give a reckoning and account for their life lived in light of a holy God, if they do not have atoning blood justifying them and covering their sins, then we, the righteous ones, who find hope in Christ alone, will find a thousand falling at our side and ten thousand at our right hand condemned to hell. Yet we are safe. It will not come near us because Christ is our ark. Because Christ is our salvation. And we have received in the dwelling, by dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, provision in the, in the form of favor, God's favor, which saves us from judgment. Notice more particularly verse 8. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. You will not experience the recompense of the Lord. What is recompense? It's to repay that which is justly deserved. We deserve hell because of our sin against a holy God. Yet uh, consider Noah and his family looking through the window of the ark upon this watery landscape that has swallowed up the highest mountain at the time by 15 cubits. An occasional body might float by. Debris spread as far as the eye could see. And Noah might be fearful at this sight, but he had no ultimate reason to be because he had been preserved. That is to say, he would look with his eyes and only with these would he see the recompense of the wicked. He would not experience the, re- the, payment for his, uh, the repayment for sin, the just deserts of sin, because he had received the salvation of the Lord. And for those who find refuge in the Lord, for those who tw- trust in Him, as their shelter, their shadow, their refuge, their fortress, their pinions, their wings, their shield, their buckler, they will ultimately be, uh, say the same thing. Only with my eyes have I seen the recompense of the wicked. But it has not come near me because Christ is my Savior. Christ is my shelter. Revelation 22 speaks of this final day. We'll have several references to Revelation today that dovetail Psalm 91. It really brings into clarity, focus, and ultimate fulfillment these concepts. Revelation twenty-two, twelve, for instance, Behold, the Lord speaking, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. When the Lord comes fully and finally in the consummation of His kingdom, ultimately speaking, bringing His recompense with Him. His eyes are flames of fire. Out of His mouth proceeds a two-edged sword for the destruction of His enemies. And He rides a champion war steed, a white horse, into battle. And all His enemies are slain. And in the picture of Revelation, the blood reaches the height of the horse's bridles as whole-scale destruction of all His enemies finally comes upon them. But there are those who march behind Him. There are those who share in His victory. There are those who can look and see only with their eyes the recompense of the wicked, but are ultimately saved from that judgment because they trust in Him 
as their Savior and Lord. This is day of the Lord language, recompense. It presupposes a sovereign purpose for calamity, that God does bring whole-scale destruction at times upon a people because His righteousness and His judgment demand that sin be punished. But on that final day, those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High will be saved. So what is this dwelling place? We mentioned already the tabernacle and the temple or in the, uh, which housed this picture of safety where the wings are stretched out over the mercy seat. There is a great parallel text to illustrate this more, more specifically in 2 Chronicles 6, 18 and through the end of the chapter. We won't go there today, but here is recorded the prayer of Solomon. This is an inaugural prayer when the temple construction was complete. And Solomon looks at this house and he says, Oh, great and mighty God, you know, paraphrasing. It's foolish for me to think that a house made by mere human hands can contain you. So Solomon recognizes this place is symbolic of something. It represents, but doesn't fully realize, it is a symbolic of a spiritual reality that the only safe place is God's dwelling with man. And now and then he proceeds to pray that this dwelling place would represent a touchstone, a place where the attention of man might turn the, the covenant faithful and find refuge, solace, dwelling place, protection, shelter, and so forth. And as he prays, he prays according to categories in his petition. In other words, in the words of Solomon, on the ground, uh, so to speak, on the ground of share, uh, because men are sinful, and then on the ground of this shared dwelling place of God with man at the temple, he prays that civil disputes would be resolved, verses 22 through 23. He prays in verses 24 through 25 that people would find refuge and even in times of defeat and war, or from defeat and war, 26 through 27, from drought, a famine, pestilence, plague, sickness, and affliction, verses 28 and 29, from sorrow, uh, in verses 32 through 33, prayers of the faithful foreigners would be answered, verses 34 and following, uh, national conflict and war, 36 through 39, deliverance from captivity and exile. In other words, Solomon is directing the attention of the people to the place of God's dwelling with man and communicating in this prayer that only here ultimately is found shelter from all of these problems, defeat and war, famine, pestilence, plague, sickness, sorrow, affliction, and uh, the conflict that surrounds us in this wicked world, captivity and exile to our sin and to foreign powers and otherwise. So the dwelling place of God is represented by Noah's Ark. It's represented by the tabernacle. It's represented by the temple, but it's ultimately fulfilled in New Jerusalem. And we'll close later on with that verse, Revelation 21.3, which declares as much. Let's move to point three. Dwelling in the shelter of the Most High provides not only a covering of protection, favor from judgment, but a conquering grace as well. Notice verses 10 through 13. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For, verse 11, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 13, You will tread on the lion and on the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The language here shifts from one of defensive position 
to a victorious triumph. In the first case, we see the imagery primarily refers to shelter, shadow, refuge, fortress, you know, hiding from the plague, from the problems without. But in this case, there's language of victorious triumph. Uh, He says that you will tread on the lion and on the adder. The lion is that kind of picture, that symbolic picture of a ferocious enemy. And on the adder, that's the poisonous serpent. The young lion and the serpent, both of them, he says, Verse 13, you will trample underfoot. So in the dwelling in the shelter of the Most High provides a grace to conquer our enemies, not just to survive them, but to overcome them. Now, this is done through Christ our Lord. And to prove this, let's go to Matthew 4. These verses are fulfilled in amazing and particular and precise fashion in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the section that we've just read uh, sets up, it prophesies, it anticipates an event in the gospel that we find in the temptation of Jesus. Matthew records it in chapter 4. Let us read here, beginning in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The temptation continues. That's phase one. Now we enter phase two, verse five. Then the devil devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now listen to this quote. Apparently, Satan has memorized uh, Psalm 91 as well. He says, For he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then phase three of the temptation ensues. He takes him, that is the devil, taking Christ to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I want you to notice how directly this incident parallels verses 10 through 13 of Psalm 91. First of all, we have the devil's quote. In Matthew 4, 6 through 7, the devil quoted Psalm 91, 11, and 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Yet the enemy meant to twist and misuse this scripture. He meant to take this scripture out of context to justify Christ glorifying himself as it were, self-aggrandizing, that is, uh, as a mere man over the knowledge of God, circumventing the word and plan of God, and in this presumptuous act, uh, disobey his Father, to misuse the scripture to justify an act of self-worship as it were. And so in this, the devil had misquoted Psalm 91. And you can see where this would represent a real threat. This is the enemy of our souls. This is the snare of the fowler being set for the only one 
who is our hope for deliverance. Will the snare be successful? Will Jesus be trapped by this conniving scheme? Will the deadly pestilence of judgment overtake even Christ? We find that He is triumphant. There is messianic triumph. He triumphs over the serpent. How does He do so? He quotes the Word of God directly and in context and refutes the enemy and his misuse of Scripture. He says to him, on, you shall worship the Lord your God, Him only you shall serve. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I want you to picture the heel of Christ rising and then falling on the head of the serpent in this picture. This is one of the preliminary moments in the gospel where messianic triumph is featured. Christ would ultimately crush the head of the serpent on the cross, yes, but He began His triumphal work in these moments. He survived temptation, He vanquished the devil, and we begin to see the heel of our conquering Messiah pressed deeper upon the, and more firmly upon the skull of the enemy, fulfilling the very next verse after the ones the devil quoted in Psalm 91, 13. You will tread on the lion and on the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Jesus Christ trampled the serpent underfoot when He defeated the temptation of Christ by quoting Scripture in context. And Christ uh, trampled the serpent underfoot when He defeated death, hell, and the grave. We sometimes remember this time of year signaled by His resurrection on the cross of Calvary. In that act, shedding the blood of atonement that would ultimately be poured upon the mercy seat, as it were, securing for us ultimate safety, a dwelling place with the Most High, a union with the Holy God, where a sinner has the blood of Christ to atone and to wash away that which once made him an enemy of the Lord. There is messianic triumph prefigured and anticipated in our text. And yes, Christ trampled Satan underfoot. And ironically, he did it right after we see the verse 13 fulfilled right after verses 11 and 12 are quoted by Satan. Now, what of angelic ministry or angelic servants? Does that relate to our text as well? Yes, it does. In verses 11 and 12, understood correctly, there is this promise. The Lord will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Do we see the angelic ministry? of these agents, these messengers of God, in the case of Jesus Christ after His temptation? Yes, we do. Did you notice the close of this text? Verse 11, again, Matthew 4. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The angels, these Lord, the servants of the Lord, were dispatched to His servant Christ at this time to minister to Him, thus fulfilling the text that He will give His angels charge over you. They will come and minister. There are other times when the ministering angels of the Lord are dispatched in fulfillment and in picture of what this text illustrates. Consider, for instance, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 4-8. After his victorious defeat of Satan, as it were, and his emissaries and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, the angels were sent to minister and to restore him as well. Thus, through the angelic servants, the means that God has provided, He gave conquering grace to His servants to defeat the enemy and declare through their Messiah triumph over Satan. This messianic triumph is extended by way of promise even unto us 
Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. This conquering grace through Christ is extended to us. We will receive this promise that Christ, the serpent, the, the, that through Christ, the serpent, the adder, and the young lion will be tread under our feet as well. For all who are in him, we will glory in his triumph as we see Satan defeated through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony and loving not our lives unto death. Finally this morning, dwelling in the shelter of the Most High provides not just a covering of protection, favor from judgment, a grace that conquers, but covenantal benevolence. That is, the love, the care, the bestowal of God's grace, His mercy, His overflowing provision, protection to us. Notice how the uh, person, the uh, pronouns change in the course of Psalm 91. In the beginning, it's the first person from the author's perspective, from the human perspective. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. In the middle, it's sort of the prophetic second person. You will not fear the terror of night. It's proclaiming to those who are the covenant faithful, a thousand may fall at your side, at your right hand. But then the psalm closes with first person divine perspective. It says in verse 14, he holds fast to me in love. Whose voice is this? This is Yahweh's voice. This is the Most High's voice. This is the Lord. The references uh, to the Lord uh, vary throughout the text, emphasizing the Lord and His glory. And as we see them multiplied, it gives us great encouragement. This is the revelatory voice of our covenant head. This is the great King speaking. This is the Lord Himself. This is the one who is referred to as the Most High, the Almighty, Yahweh and God. And notice what He says, because He holds fast to me, namely the one that trusts and places his hope and confidence, his faith in the shelter of the Most High, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. And so it goes. The first person perspective of the divine extends to us the promises that, we, that reassure us against the enemy on all sides and every kind of adversary. Who are the covenanted ones? These are the vassals, if you will, the lesser party, the ones that are bound by his promises to the Most High, the ones who are in restored relationship through Him, through the means that His gospel supplies. Who are they? Well, we see them defined by three phrases. Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him because He knows my name. When He calls to me, I will answer Him. So who are the ones that have deserved to feel the reassurance? It may deserve is the wrong term, Reserve on account of Christ's work. Who are the ones who are positioned, who are postured to receive the legitimate assurance of Psalm 91? They are the ones who hold fast to the Lord in love, who love Him because He first loved them and gave His Son for the payment of their sins, whose hearts are stirred with affection when they are reminded of how their sins are covered by the blood of Christ their Lord. They are the ones who hold fast to Him in love. They are the ones who know His name. When the name of the Lord is pronounced in song in the Scriptures, they know that that name represents healing, hope, salvation, freedom, joy, the promises of eternal glory for them. The Lord protects those because they know His name. And finally, they are the ones who call on Him. When He calls to me, the promise is, I will answer. 
I asked you earlier in this message, where do you find your refuge? This is related to the question, who do you call when you are in trouble? Your first, your primary, your priority, your most, a reassuring source of hope is to call unto the Lord in prayer, in petition that He might deliver you. Yes, you go to the hospital when you are sick. Yes, you call the insurance company after some, you know, you have a storm that takes off the roof of your house or a fire, God forbid, destroys some of your prized possessions. Uh, yes, you call a friend for support when you're going through a difficult time, draw encouragement from one who has shared in a similar experience. But first and foremost, and primarily, the those who are in, a, are in the position to justly and legitimately hold on to the promises of Psalm 91, they hold fast to Yahweh, to the Lord, to the Almighty, to God, the Most High in love. Primarily and firstly, they know His name is the source of their hope, their assurance, protection. They call out to Him in their day of trouble and know in His name, in His gospel, in His means, through His word, by His spirit, that shelter, shadow, refuge, fortress, wings and pinions, shield and buckler will be provided. The final verse of our text today proclaims the following, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Young people, you want to play the stop game? Do you remember that? So I say a phrase, and if you hear that phrase, um, you say stop. So the phrase is, I will, okay? I'm going to read a few verses. Every time you hear the phrase, I will, tell me to stop. Here we go. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. That's the first one. I will protect him. That's the second, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. How many do we have so far? I will be with him in trouble. Good job, four. I will rescue him. How many? And honor him with long life. I will satisfy him. Oh, six. And show my salvation. So good job. You guys all won the game. Six times we have this phrase, I will. Notice what follows, deliverance, protection, answer, be with him in trouble, accompaniment through the difficulties that we face this side of glory, rescue and honor and satisfaction of his salvation with the attending long life that he, by the power of the life giver in the first place, can grant. The Lord says that he will do all these things for us. This is his intent. This is His will, and this He will accomplish. In closing, turn to Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, we find the final and the full, fullest fulfillment of the words of Psalm 91. Again, we ask ourselves, where is the dwelling place of the Most High with man? Where do we find the shelter that He provides? Notice how this is answered in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This after the picture of new, heaven, new heavens and new earth is revealed before the eyes of John the Revelator, as it were. He sees this holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the voice proceeds from glory, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That is to say, the place where the uh, the covenanted people dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty finds its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. This is important because we may take Psalm 91 to mean that if we are truly faithful and we truly receive the promises of God, that we will never experience pestilence or harm, disease, affliction, trial, tragedy in this life. No, that is not quite right. The Lord does intervene. He does deliver us. But these deliverances, here's a fancy word, should be seen as proleptic, uh, proleptic of that which is to come. What does proleptic mean? It means anticipating, prefiguring, pointing forward to deliverance to come. Some of you have known the Lord's grace and favor in healing from a certain disease or uh, sickness. The Lord has allowed your body in some cases to regroup. You've seen answered, answered prayer and deliverance from some enemies he, uh, here and there. We can and, and ought to rejoice when we receive answers to prayer like this in the course of our life. But know that Psalm 91 will ultimately be fulfilled, not with the perfection in this short span of time. Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days. After all, after all we are frail and you know the strong man gets 80 and uh, most likely 70 by Moses' accounting. Know, therefore, that Psalm 91 will ultimately and perfectly be fulfilled in the dwelling place of God with man in the new heavens and new earth. And when that day arrives for you and me, if you are in Christ today, where is the terror that flies by night? Will it be able to attack the walls of New Jerusalem? Never. Such a thought is ridiculous. It's absurd. In the new heavens and new earth, is there sufficient safety under the pinions and wings of our almighty God? Where is the pestilence that stalks in darkness, the destruction that wastes in noonday? Where is the tear, the pain, the sorrow, the crying? They are gone. In the new heavens and new earth, the Most High and His refuge is fully realized for all the saints. And faith in the fulfillment of Psalm 91 in large part is looking forward to those promises which are yes and amen for us, for all true believers in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, Revelation 21.3 holds out hope for the ultimate place of God's dwelling with man. It is yet to come in the new heavens and new earth. All answers to Psalm 91 type prayers, all temporary fulfillments of Psalm 91, they point forward, they are proleptic, they uh, anticipate the promises that are yet to come. And so we look to this future hope and assurance for all true believers that is found in Christ alone. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for the reassuring promises of your scripture. We are so thankful for the promises that are assured to us in Christ our Lord. We thank you that in our conquering Messiah, that we will tread the serpent underfoot. And we thank you, Lord, that the hopeful future for us is bright indeed. And there will never even be a shadow of turning, no darkness to befall us, no sorrow to remain. All that this fallen world has, uh, has uh, given us, Lord, will be just a distant memory in glory one day. We thank you for these promises. We also pray that the lost might hear a message like this 
and find reassurance. Find a dwelling in the shelter of the Most High in the only place that it is provided that they would confess their sins, repent, place faith in Christ alone, and join us, Lord Jesus, in the great reassuring and uh, encouraging prayers and union and fellowship and hope and confession and proclamation of Your Word, which delivers to us the promise of complete salvation. Thank You, Lord, for these things. We give You praise and glory for them. In Jesus' name, amen.